Raising the alert of Russian nuclear forces is a bone-chilling development. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility. We have our special Russian truce that you need to accept. State-controlled TV beamed these pictures into the nation's living room. A report on mass exercises in preparation for possible nuclear war. Locate your nearest bomb shelter now, the presenter says, before it's too late. Well, Russians are being told to get ready for a nuclear war. We're at the other end of the world, but should we take it more seriously? Having these weapons forever, we will see them being used eventually. We see a very dangerous situation right now. Russia's threat of nuclear war is itself a weapon of war, meant to scare countries like the U.S. into inaction. It's another step to actually use nuclear weapons because once you do, all bets are off in terms of how destructive this uh, new phase is going to be. The risk of nuclear weapons use has increased. Uh, I'm not saying that it's likely to be used, but I think we have to be aware that we are pushing closer and closer to that point where it's eventually going to be used. And if it's not the nuclear threat, what about other global shocks? Extreme pandemics, things like artificial intelligence run amok, super volcanic eruptions, comet or asteroid impact. You know, there are actually a suite of of potential events that could necessitate, you know, the, the same sorts of preparations. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on the detail, why New Zealand needs to be better prepared for the next catastrophe. People insure their houses, and the risk of a fire in any one year is is tiny. You know, way way under one percent. Mm. I mean, most commentators think the risk of nuclear war this century is quite substantial. That's Professor Nick Wilson from Otago University in Wellington. He's a familiar public health voice in the COVID story. In this podcast, he's talking about a project he's been working on with Dr Matt Boyd, a catastrophic risk researcher. It's about how New Zealand would cope after a nuclear war and how to mitigate catastrophe. And it's a bit of a deja vu topic for Nick. Well, actually, I've been thinking about this issue for quite a long time. And in fact, I did some work for the Commission for the Future back in the early 1980s. And they wrote a report on uh, nuclear disaster, a basically a Northern Hemisphere nuclear war and the impact uh, that would have for New Zealand. And uh, that highlighted some interesting things that the radiation wasn't such a big issue. It was really about the impact of our highly trade-dependent society. So both Matt and I have been working on some other issues around catastrophes and resilience, but definitely with the Ukraine situation, that made us think more about the the nuclear issue as well. Yeah, so so I've sort of drifted into uh, research on global catastrophic risks via work on health, quality and safety, you know, risks to individuals and moving up to risks to populations, moving up to risks to the to the global population. But if you if you look at the probability of these various catastrophes and multiply that by the, the scale of harm, then uh, it's been clear for a while that uh, extreme pandemics, um, nuclear war and climate change, obviously, as well, have been the greatest threats for some time and had been looked at in the 80s during the heights of the, of the Cold War. But New Zealand uh, policymakers 
and New Zealand as a society haven't really revisited a lot of these risks since then. So uh, it's perhaps time for a for a national conversation. When I say to people, oh, I'm going to do a podcast about how prepared we are for nuclear war, the, the response is usually, well, that we don't need to be, do we? It's not, it's not going to happen. The situation with the Cuban missile crisis was quite instructive in that uh, many of the people involved at the time were saying, maybe there's a third or maybe there's a half a chance that there will be a nuclear war before this missile crisis is over. And fortunately, we got through that. Uh, but maybe with during a crisis phase like we have in Ukraine, we, we could be at, for example, 10% off the equivalent uh, Cuban missile uh, risk, which you know, 50% times 10% is 5%. So maybe this year there is something in the order of a 5% chance. But, I mean, there's massive uncertainty around that. But uh, it's something that, um, you know, we, we just can't dismiss. Yeah, and look, I guess, I guess it goes beyond the, just the risk of, of nuclear war as well. You know, the main threats from n- nuclear war are, are the impacts on global climate and the disruptions to, you know, to trade and logistics and so forth around the world. And, and, and that's not the only risk that could cause those problems. We'll pick up on those other risks soon, but let's look now at the nuclear war scenarios. As part of its war propaganda, Russian state TV has broadcast mocked-up clips of nuclear weapons wiping out the UK and Ireland. Sounds far-fetched, right? Many analysts say it's unlikely the weapons will be used in warfare, although it can't be ruled out. And just listen to what Russia has in its nuclear arsenal. In principle, Russia's weapons can be delivered by air with strategic bombers such as the Tu-95MS and Tu-160 by its navy with nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines, and by land-based ballistic launchers, such as this RS-24 Yars. The explosive force of atomic bombs is measured in kilotons, and warheads on these weapons have a power of as much as 400 kilotons, according to defense analysts. That's more than 25 times the atomic bomb the U.S. used in Hiroshima, Japan, at the end of World War II. If there is a nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere, what does, does that actually look like? It could range from, from anything from, in the Ukraine context, Russia using perhaps one nuclear weapon against Ukraine, or, or it could expand from there. And if they were to use a nuclear weapon or, or weapons in Ukraine, then the next question would be what would be the likelihood that the NATO alliance would, would respond in kind, and then, you know, dependent on the various countries' nuclear doctrines um, and, and, you know, various game theoretic uh, factors and so forth, you know, to what degree that might escalate. This kind of arms race that is happening right now. And, of course, now we see how Russia is uh, basically threatening the world to use nuclear weapons if anyone interferes with its invasion of Ukraine. You know, it, it might be that only a few weapons are exchanged or it might be that, uh, th- you know, things get out of control due to irrationality and, and so forth, and, and potentially many, many hundreds of weapons are exchanged. And that the impact of that then is that the detonations would cause fires, a substantial amount of combustible material in cities could burn, sending soot into the atmosphere, which would be black soot heated by the sun. It would, it would potentially stay aloft in the stratosphere and spread around the, the entire world. And atmospheric and, and um, climate modelling studies have suggested that 
you know, if enough weapons were used on, on the right kinds or the wrong kinds of targets, then um, the average temperature of the Earth could decrease by, by potentially eight degrees over a period of, of five to ten years with, with massive temperature drops in summer in, in Europe and North America, which are, which are obviously the, you know, some of the main uh, food-producing regions of the Earth. Um, there could be destruction of critical infrastructure like ports and airports and fibre-optic cables and satellites. Um, and and the impact on on crops in the growing season could be very substantial, and, and particularly in the northern hemisphere, leading to hoarding of food and, and an unwillingness or inability to to trade as normal. And and to be quite honest, New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, in one sense, it's good that we're as far away from from the likely site of that conflict as possible. But but on the other hand, that makes us one of the more likely countries to to be you know dropped out of. Uh, international trade and you know we're so dependent on on that for functioning that uh, life could become very very difficult so we would have to learn to be self-sufficient we we would and there are features of New Zealand that that mean we we have a good chance of being self-sufficient but there's also some some major concerns there's different ways of being self-sufficient you might survive Uh, New Zealand produces enough food, that there's probably enough food for everyone if we can distribute it uh, okay. And, and so it's unlikely that, you know, that, that everyone would starve to death, for example. But um, it's certainly possible that our 100% dependence basically on oil imports for, mm. you know, or re- refined fuel imports, our dependence on things like um, valves and, and lubricants and you know, all these chemicals and components um, that, that we don't manufacture locally would mean that you know, if we were isolated for a period of time, months or years even, uh, pieces of infrastructure would start to degrade and break down and we may not have the, the componentry or expertise locally to, to restore those. And and without uh, fuel and with an electric vehicle fleet in the order of, you know, 1% of our fleet at the moment, even things like transporting milk daily from, uh, you know, from farms to, to uh, processing facilities uh, may be difficult. Um, it may be difficult to, to transport goods across Cook Strait um, uh, there may be inability to transport goods by rail, um, and and exactly how we would distribute the food that we do have to get it to the right places is you know is, is unclear. So the, these sorts of things you know would would warrant some sort of uh, consideration ahead of time. Taking it back a bit, Nick, would a nuclear winter necessarily spread to New Zealand? I mean, you know, w- would New Zealand feel the effects of a nuclear war? Well, as Matt pointed out, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, around what would happen in a nuclear war. Uh, But the climate models have been getting uh, more sophisticated. And if a significant amount of soot was ejected into the stratosphere of the Northern Hemisphere, uh, we know that that would mix with the Southern Hemisphere circulation. And so we would have some impact. But in the modelling that we've seen for impacts on New Zealand, even a pretty severe uh, nuclear war scenario probably wouldn't have much impact on agricultural production in New Zealand. So uh, fortunately, we're both far away and we're also surrounded by ocean, which has a very strong thermomodulatory impact and it, and it buffers the climate uh, a, a lot in New Zealand. So we've got those uh, protective features. But Good planning should um, maybe consider both likely scenarios, but also more extreme scenarios, so that 
although we're major food producers, uh, in fact, our exports alone could feed four times the current New Zealand population. But we are concerned about how that food could keep being produced with shortages of diesel and farm machinery components and so on, and how to fairly distribute it if the financial system collapses and uh, you know you have to think about rationing systems or other ways to keep some type of uh, economy working. So is there quite a bit of research on this already? Are, are other countries doing quite a lot of preparation? I imagine in the Northern Hemisphere in particular they are. The, the modelling is being done by uh, university scientists, uh, sometimes supported by philanthropic trusts, but it seems governments aren't very good at planning for these type of things because uh, they don't like scaring their population. And in the uh, national risk assessments that are publicly available that countries have done, uh, they really consider this issue. And in fact, New Zealand's national risk register is classified. So we don't know if there's even any discussion, but New Zealand politicians have certainly not actively discussed any of these issues, despite uh, the work we've did on pandemic showing that New Zealand is just in the top three countries for surviving. Mm. So it, it's, a, it's a big gap. Oh, well, that's what I was going to ask, Matt. Are you saying that you don't actually know what sort of preparation is in place in New Zealand in the case of a nuclear attack? Yeah, that's, that's basically right. So uh, in the 1980s, there was uh, some, some work done on this. Um, you know, obviously, that was potentially the last time that that nuclear war was was you know as salient as it is today for New Zealand, and um, you know there was there was some discussion, some indication that there was going to be more funding to to more closely research the the impacts, particularly on New Zealand society, which never really went ahead. And um, so that was thirty five years ago now, um, and and even you know obviously the the context around that analysis has changed quite a lot with with uh, the the changing mix of of New Zealand's economy and and population and and so forth. And as Nick says, the national risk assessment and risk register are, are classified, so it's it's hard to know exactly you know what what's being considered. The food supply should be okay in New Zealand, but it's it's really all these other things that are that are the problem: the potential breakdown in, in transportation and and energy and and communication in particular. And so. Even if there is some, you know, some central planning, um, it, and if communication networks were to were to falter p- potentially as a result of a electromagnetic pulse or you know or some other factor for in a, in a nuclear war, it, it's unclear how the the plan could then be um, communicated and and distributed if people haven't discussed it ahead of time. And it's natural to panic in these sorts of situations, and there'd be a serious risk of you know a breakdown in, in social cohesion and social order particularly because even in the 1980s it was found that people have misperceptions about what the greatest risk is in this situation and you know the thought was that radiation was going to be a major problem and maybe a bit of cold weather but potentially it's things like loss of trade and fuel supply and the need for rationing and and that yeah look a lot of logistics work is probably needed so what about a real world example of a global catastrophe well just listen to this i had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space. Rayless and pathless, the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. 
the opening lines to the poem Darkness by Lord Byron, where the protagonist predicts the end of the earth, paint a dismal picture. The poem unquestionably was inspired by real events of the day. This is the history guy talking about the eruption of Mount Tambora in the then East Indies in 1815. It was the most powerful volcanic eruption in human history. The amount of material ejected was mind-blowingly massive. Nearly 10 cubic miles of stone, some 10 billion tons worth, was ejected as ash. The mountain lost nearly 5,000 feet of elevation, with ash falling more than 800 miles away. The Tambora eruption led to the, the, the year without a summer. Darkened skies around the world substantially contributed to famines in Europe, in India and China, and there's evidence that it caused disruptions to the early Australian colonies, in, in, say, in Sydney, with floods and so on. You know, if enough material gets ejected into the stratosphere, these, these kinds of impacts can occur. And, you know, we've seen how even quite small things can cause major global disruption when, uh, when you know, one ship blocked the Suez Canal, the amount of trade that fell apart in the wake of that. So there's a range of risk. Anything that could lead to New Zealand's isolation, whether it be extreme border closures for a, for a very severe pandemic, much worse than, than COVID-19, or whether it's some natural hazard or whether it's some conflict. There's probably general resilience measures that we can take that would be useful in any of these contexts. And that's the sort of thing that I'd advocate for. Why do you think this information is classified? Why, why shouldn't it be out there and under discussion? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it clearly should, and there's precedent around the world. The, the UK, for example, has a publicly facing um, version of the of the National Risk Register. Perhaps some governments are, are a bit averse to publishing bad news, or for some other reason. I'd say that the, the benefits fall on the other side of the coin, that the more people that understand the risks, as we saw before COVID, you know, businesses, it wasn't really on their radar what to do or the need to plan for a pandemic. And I guess a lot of people wish they had had those contingency plans in place. And how far do you think our preparation should go? You know, should we all be building bunkers under the house? Some of these preparations are actually win-win and uh, good to do anyway. For example, expanding the fleet of electric vehicles, that is a good thing to do for climate change and building strong infrastructure for public transport, and things like building uh, community-level food resilience. We, we need to separate out things that are good to do anyway and uh, are potentially cost-saving uh, with ones that may be more expensive. And that, you know, for example, maybe it would be more expensive to build up biofuel production in New Zealand. But, you know, the government might decide it's worthwhile having that uh, buffer of resiliency maybe strengthening the water distribution system and the sewerage system so that it's got enough spare parts to run for 10 years, for example. Those sort of things may be actually quite low cost, but deliver high levels of resiliency and uh, uh, would help the public feel more secure if we suddenly had a no-trade scenario. What do you think individuals should be doing? Well, I think the key thing is to, you know, for individuals to ask the government to get its act together and actually discuss these risks and discuss what are the options for building resiliency because this will be a situation where government organisation at the central level and the uh, local government level is is really the critical factor. You know, individuals might have good 
home food self-sufficiency, but if society's basically falling apart, the financial system's falling apart and so on, it, it's going to be uh, terrible for everyone. So that the focus really needs to be at the high level so that we have a, a well-functioning government that could even try and keep trade going with Australia and some of the uh, nearby countries. Focusing on, on micro-level, uh, you know, what you can grow in your garden is is a sort of good thing, but it, it, it can be a bit of a distraction. Nuclear war is not just is not the only risk, and, and basically I would advocate for a government structure that looks across the risks and prioritises the interventions for the risks and is responsible for overseeing resilience building in New Zealand, which is going to be a multi-year, multi-decade or even multi-generational uh, process. What kind of response have you had to this article? It's been picked up by, by friends and colleagues that I know even as far away as the UK, um, working at institutions like Cambridge's um, Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, who have, have considered New Zealand potentially a, a safe haven that, that might mean some humanity might survive through these kinds of catastrophes. But this sort of analysis shows potentially how fragile even these places that are, that are supposedly best best suited for, for survival really are. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we shouldn't assume uh, that, that, you know, the best will happen. Yeah, we can't think, oh, we'll be all right. It's just sorted out on the day. I think the uh, COVID-19 pandemic was pretty instructive in that you know, New Zealand wasn't as prepared as it uh, should have been. Yeah, we, we should learn that, you know, sometimes these things which may only happen a few times a century do actually occur. I mean, COVID-19 has cost the, the world trillions of dollars. And so, you know, a lot of people are thinking, oh, we just can't have this sort of situation. We have to invest more in preventing pandemics, uh, being able to detect them very early and stamp them out. You know, we should also be doing far, far more to prevent nuclear war, but we have to realise there's a risk of prevention failing. So we should also be looking for countries like New Zealand at how to uh, best manage if the worst comes to occur. I fear that one of the, the risks is that people don't realise that, that, that it is possible to manage the situation and that, that increases panic and particularly in our recent climate of you know rampant mis and disinformation. If there isn't a discussion ahead of time that there will be enough food, that radiation probably isn't a problem for New Zealand, there is planning in place that we do have alternative fuel supplies, then society may may break down. So uh, again, I'd, I'd just emphasise that I'd, I'd like to see these things in the public domain so that we can have a public conversation. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Matt Boyd and Nick Wilson. Kakite anō.